Good morning, Travelers Blueprint community. I'm Elliot Shibley, and here with me today is the lucid Robert Demena. Thank you. Good morning. So before we jump into the information on the podcast, I want to encourage you to check out our website where you can book trips with companies around the world who we have vetted through the podcast, whether it was an employee of that company, the manager of the company, or the owner. So we spoke with them in detail about what they do and what their companies offer, and then provide you with the links to access those companies directly in book. If you book with GJ Travel specifically, you will get 5% off of your trip, and a small proceed goes towards our podcast and the time and efforts we put into it. So we, we do appreciate it very much. The, the trivia question, right? So last week, we had the first half of Ash's conversation, and the trivia question for that conversation was, what did the people in Vietnam do to Ash and his friend? If you answered, pulled his leg hair, which, dude, that's so interesting. That they, it is. That they zoned in on that and, yeah. <laughs> and decided to do that. If you answered, pulled his leg hair, and you sent us that answer via email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or through a DM on any social media platform, we will be reaching out to you to send you a Traveler's Blueprint sticker. And as always, thank you for participating <laughs> in, the, in the weekly trivia. Yes. So our guest today is Ash, as you all know, and we'll be picking up our conversation at the end of Madagascar into China and his conservation efforts throughout the world and what he plans to do in the future. So please welcome back to the show to continue our conversation, Ash Dykes. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. I'm trying to have an understand what it was like for you to be in the middle of a, of a jungle island uh, that not many Westerners visit the people you're with believe in witches and spirits and here you are just tucked away walking walking through it what was the jungle itself like the jungle was a nightmare very very difficult um machete in hand sort of no paths no real tracks even to the peaks at the summits these summits they're not you know they're not your everests they're not popular ones that people pay a lot of money to go up and climb these are just mountains that no one really cares about climbing because they're not big. They're only like two and a half to 3,000 meters, but they're jungle. So it's, you know, jungle on its own is a challenge and then mountains on, on their own is a challenge. You merge them to, to be jung mountainous jungles and you're sort of hacking whilst you're climbing. Forget your technical climbing, you're a machete in hand climbing up through the bushes, sort of hacking away at the, the bamboo. Uh, you've got leeches falling off the canopy. Um, they would drop down your shirt. You know, you'd take your shirt off and you'd have to apply these six, seven leeches and flick them out the tent. You've got <laughs> spiders, so yeah. the spiders would drop down. I one spider dropped down my shirt and it bit me in two different locations, you know, as it tried to um, exit my top. Uh, so that became all infected. I came across aloe vera plants and uh, aloe plants and, and managed to cover my uh, infections with them. I was being stabbed by the bamboo. We were all cut. It was the cyclone season as well. So not only were we climbing jung uh, mountainous jungles, but it was the cyclone season. So it was all flooded. Rivers were bigger. Streams were bigger. It was a lot cold. It was weirdly cold as well. Nothing dried. So you're sleeping wet. You're walking wet. You're sort of hunting and gathering because you're not coming across many locals. 
So we would um, hunt for little tenrec rodents or we would gather um, sugarcane or mangoes or any coconuts if we were lucky to come across any. Um, and it was just real, real tough. And that's where I learned a harsh lesson there, but a lesson that I think is true in life in general uh, is that we got to a point where we hated it, just didn't want to be there. Um, and we, we lost all motivation, but it was at that point we realized that, you know, we can't always be motivated, but we can be disciplined. And it was with discipline that we just continued to get up. We had to take the hacking in turn because we'd get blisters on our hands from the machete. Uh, we would walk for 12 to 14 hours and only cover a distance of maybe three miles. Um, and so, yeah, we stayed disciplined, continued to get up, continued to hack until eventually we made it out of the jungle. Like, even if the locals, some of the locals that we came across up there, we would see a community in the distance. And if we arrived at that community, it was like they saw us before we saw them and they abandoned the community. Um, they were scared because it was, of course, a Westerner there. Um, and they, they, would, they could see us, but we couldn't see them. They were hiding in the bush and they wouldn't come out until we left. Um, so maybe I think for the young generation, or maybe for that generation of that community, it was maybe their first time ever seeing a Westerner. Because uh, when the French ruled over 60 years ago, the French were quite brutal in the outback. So I think that generation that freaked out were probably left with quite dark and negative stories from their great-grandparents or grandparents on how the Westerners used to be pretty brutal towards them. So they are only relating their ancestors' stories. Now they're seeing me. Their first reaction is, let's get the heck out of here. Dude, um, you're lucky they didn't kill you. Yeah, pretty much. In a way, yeah. Um, I think when the French went there last time, though, they had guns, whereas the locals, you know, they don't have guns up, up there in the, in the jungle. Um, and so, yeah, they just, just escaped, just got on out there, which is a shame. Sometimes they were really freaked out. They would shake, but sometimes they wouldn't run. And I just did my best to smile, you know, leave them with gifts, leave them with something, just, try, just, to, just to try to let them know, really, that the world's moved on. It's not the same as it was back then. Um, so I'd always feel a sense of pride after, you know, thinking that hopefully I've changed their, their perspective because they're not connected, really. You know, there's even stories that the tribes... Um, or the communities high up in the mountainous jungles, they don't even converse with the communities further down or on the coastline. And if Malagasy that they don't know do approach their community, they, they are very on edge and very nervous and they just don't like them there. So they try to shoo them off too, uh, which is crazy for Madagascar. Like, yes, maybe Papua New Guinea or the Amazon, but I was warned about that about Madagascar, but it's one thing hearing about it and then another thing experiencing it. You know, it was mind boggling, but amazing at the same time to think that there are still places out there. You know, the, the people say that the world's a small place, but I believe that's only if you're on the usual track. Once you're off that beaten track, you'll soon realize that the world is massive. Wow. Did, did you pick up that smiling is universal for like, I come in peace? hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I've always been a smiley character. Naturally, I never really stopped smiling. Um, and when I spoke to the previous guy who tried walking across Mongolia three times, he said that he had never been invited into a gur, you know, by the nomads. And I thought that's weird, you know, and I prepared my, for my, I prepared myself for that thinking, wow, okay, maybe they're not so hospitable. But when I went out there, I was invited in endlessly by the locals they were asking me to stay they would chase me on a horse just to give me um a cup of tea to take away you know a bottle of, of chai which is their sort of um tea uh, and they were always so welcoming and i think the difference is he's quite he's um, a navy soldier you know a desert explorer he's quite um 
quite a serious guy, potentially, like a really nice guy, but he looks like the Jason Staten type character. You know? Oh, yeah. And I can't really imagine him, I don't know, I could be wrong, but breaking a smile. Whereas I'm easy approachable. I like to feel that people don't feel threatened, of course. And, you know, when I gave off a smile, the locals would smile back. They, they would almost feel that I'm not there to cause them harm. I'm not threatening or intimidating. And they would invite me in just because I'm smiling, just because, you know, I'm waving. And um, so maybe um, that was the difference between myself and, and him. I could be wrong. Uh, but I do feel and have experienced on every journey, even in Vietnam at age 19, just let your guard down, smile away. There's no harm in that. And you'll find that the locals will be so much more. Well, me as well. You know, if I walk past someone on the street and they look pretty intimidating or they grunt, like grunting or whatnot, it's just like, okay, yeah, maybe it's best not to speak to him. He looks like he's in a bad mood. You see someone smiling, you know, you don't mind it. You'll end up talking and getting along. So I do think that's just a natural human thing, isn't it, for sure? So a smile right, goes yeah, I think a long way in any culture. Yeah, human instinct to be able to judge someone's body language is pretty strong. You yeah. can get a pretty good sense for how someone's feeling just by just exactly. standing next to them. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. I think that's so there's in sociology like laughter, smiling, crying, that's all human. And you can see that across cultures without even understanding exactly. the same language. But yeah. there are certain gestures like waving or shaking hands that aren't known. Yeah. Right. Yeah, potentially in places. Yeah, if you put your hand out. Uh, did I ever come across that? I don't think I've come across that where they've been unfamiliar with a, a handshake. Um, have I? I'm thinking now. It's a good question. No, I don't think I have. Sometimes I've come across some Malagasy in the jungle and they won't get close enough for you to shake their hand. Like they're there. They know you're there. They know you're there. You're the present. They're conversing with you or via my translator who was with me. Um, but they're still a little bit on edge. So they'll still keep a distance. Um, and that's why it's good from a distance. You can just smile away and just try to loosen things up and show them that you're not, you're not threatening, but with their dark past that they've had when the French ruled, you know, yeah. Why, why trust me? It's, it's one of those, is it? So, um, yeah, don't, don't overstay your, what is it? Don't outstay your welcome type of thing. What was the most dangerous thing that you had to deal with while in Madagascar? I'll tell you what, Madagascar. So starting from the South, we had to avoid the bandits. The bandits were a real threat there, sort of went out there with a pleasant mindset, but the locals were saying there's been shootings. And as I'm driving down, down south and coming across buses that have been set on fire or communities, um, and the bandits are there sort of for the zebu, which is kind of like the cattle. Um, and they'll roam land, they'll, they'll wipe out a community if they have to, to steal the zebu and take them to the other side of the island and sell them. So they were a threat. Uh, so I, what I did is I utilized the jungles down south to try to, well, the forests down south to try to hide from the bandits until my, until we got wind that the bandits were using the forest to hide from the military. So we were like, right, okay, well, we don't want to be in the forest. So I left the forest and then bumped into the military. And I don't know which is worse. Um, for the next 10, 15 minutes, I was held up at gunpoint um, by a military officer who was drunk and his sort of strap kept slipping off his shoulder as his barrel was sort of pointing at us and we were sort of moving our heads like, whoa, I was trying to check to see if the safety was on. Um, luckily, we got out of that situation. We cracked on. I then caught malaria um, only one month into the five-month expedition. That was another close encounter, possibly just as close, if not closer, than the Gobi Desert stint in Mongolia. Um, I had to push on. I, I had malaria. There was, there was no avoiding that. What is malaria like? How did you feel? Oh, it's hideous, man. So I was taking my anti-malarial pills but I'd eaten an eel 
uh, from a community that was suffering with the, the bubonic plague, an ancient disease. Yeah, they still do. In some communities, they still suffer with the plague. Um, and I was, again, I was warned, warned by my logistics manager based in Madagascar about that. But when they said that, and when they said like recently, they've had a few family members die, they said, you can stay here, but stay in your tent. And so I did. So it meant that me and my guide, we weren't cooking. They were cooking and they would bring us the food and they did. But the eel that we ate, we were so hungry, so we ate it, but it was pretty rotten. So the next few days we were suffering with diarrhea. Um, so it was pretty much going in one way, out the other. So I didn't have my, my full protection of the anti-malarial. And so that's how malaria got me. Um, and anyway, I didn't really know what it was. I thought it was dehydration. It was very similar signs and symptoms to heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Um, so I just kept pushing on. I was dizzy. I was delirious again. I was in a bad way, but I was in the middle of the no middle of nowhere. You know, I had to keep pushing on. I knew that there was another camp further on a few days away and I did eventually arrive. Uh, I remember I couldn't really get out of bed. I was in a bad way. And then I re it was at the point I realized, you know, this isn't dehydration. I've been drinking a lot. I've been getting in my salts, my sugars. This is something much worse or this is something different. Um, and then I woke up one morning, almost, I was sort of half sleeping. It was like one side of me was screaming, get up, you know, get yourself out of here, go seek medical, medical attention. And the other half of me was sort of just saying, just go back to sleep. It'll be a painless death. You'll sleep and you'll know nothing. You'll know no better. And it was that voice that scared me the most. And I woke up, um, you know, it was difficult even to get out of bed. I had no energy. But I managed to, you know, that transport, luckily had overland, uh, that community had overland transport. I got myself to the nearest city, went straight into a hotel because I couldn't go into a, uh, a hospital. Because if it was a disease from a mosquito, then a mosquito can bite me and then it can transmit that to someone else, of course. And so the doctor came to my hotel and she said, if you left this only a few hours, if you arrived here a few hours later, you would have potentially slipped into a coma. It was that bad. Um, wow. Yeah, she said it's the deadliest strain of malaria. So you've got four different strains. The strain that I had was falsiparum, which usually kills you within 24 hours. Um, and she believes maybe the only reason that I lived was because I still had some of that anti-malarial pill fighting the malaria. Uh, otherwise, she said you'd be dead in a day, really. Um, but five days later, I was still hanging on in there. Um, she gave me the right medication with the right pills. And she said unlike the other three lower malaria strains that aren't as deadly, but they can remain dormant in your system. But with falsiparum, it is the deadliest. But if you catch it in time, you can eradicate it completely out of your system. So it's one of those fortunately, but unfortunately scenarios, you know, I did catch the deadliest, but it's completely out of my system. I was able to make a full recovery. I had my mum on the phone, of course, like, what are you doing? You know, you know it's, not, it's not cold, you're not suffering with a flu. It's the biggest killer in human history. And as far as disease goes, get yourself back, back home. Uh, but I knew that I was in safe hands. And it was like, if I did what the doctor told me, and then I, you know, maybe I could make a recovery. That was the first month into the five-month journey. So at that point, I had lost 13 kilograms. And I still had four oh. months to go. And the toughest part ahead of me being the jungles and the highest mountains. But I did recover. I continued to train in my room. I was trying to do laps in the swimming pool. I was doing push-ups, doing sit-ups. I was trying to get my appetite back so I could eat more. And then I decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish what I started. Um, I got back out there and I pushed on and completed it. <laughs> but it was crazy. Man. It was crazy. 
Madagascar just through challenge after challenge. We'd have to build rafts sometimes because we came across crocodile infested rivers. We didn't want to try our luck just crossing or swimming across. So um, we would hack down some bamboo. We would use uh, bamboo leaves and we would make ourselves rafts, which would take four hours of time really just to get to the other side. Um, yeah, it was just difficult. It was, it was tough. Madagascar was 155 days it took, yet it was only an extra 100 miles longer than Mongolia, but it almost took double the duration. Okay. Yeah. Mongolia took you 78 days. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's wild. So was it the jungle and the, just the terrain that took so much longer in Madagascar? It was definitely, yeah, it was the, the jungle. It was the terrain. I think, you know, climbing the, the highest mountains, you can almost, it almost deceives you because you see the height of them and you're like, yeah, well, this one's a smaller one. That's only 2,400 meters. Um, and that doesn't sound so big, but if you, you know, that's two and a half times the height of the highest mountain here in, in Wales. Um, yeah. but it's not 8,000 plus, it's not 5,000 plus like Kilimanjaro. So you're sort of like, that's all right. That's doable. But there's eight of these and right. they're covered in jungle. And it's that jungle that threw me. I thought maybe there's going to be paths. Maybe we can follow, I don't know, wild boar tracks or something. And when it got to the point where we would literally, I don't know, cover 50 meters in one hour of hacking through the bush, this thick bamboo, it was that that really slowed us down. Uh, as I said, you know, 12 to 14 hours worth of hacking, we'd cover a few miles, no more than that. Um, one day we'd had to turn turn back on ourselves because it was too difficult. The jungle was too impenetrable. We had to turn around and walk three days back the same way that we came just to find a different way up. Three days back on ourselves, which was crucifying. But, um, you know, I had a job to do. I set myself out on the mission. There was no no complaints. It was just crack on. It is what it is. We were just have to find a different way up to the to the peak of this mountain even if it does mean walking three days back and so now when i'm driving around in wales and i have to and i miss a turning and i have to do a u-turn in the car that's going to take me an extra minute i try to put things into perspective and not stress out <laughs> right yeah that's dude that's literally what i was just thinking i i would love to harness some of your mentality and just be able to incorporate it in my daily life like you know it's it's yeah. remarkable that you find these ways to just push forward in incredibly dangerous and and brutally unforgiving situations but you you just you you you're capable of bringing yourself down and reevaluating these situations on a very small scale what do i need to do right now forget about the end game forget about the goal the primary yeah. goal what's how do i put one foot in front of the other right now in the situation that i'm in and when you micromanage it like that you can really yeah. you can accomplish it big time yeah yeah and so yeah, it's a exactly really that it's a fascinating way to look at these these scenarios that you put yourself in it's 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 really cool man yeah man i think and you know when i talk about these sort of journeys that i've been we're not all gonna sort of cross the desert or hack through the jungle so i'm i mean i do a lot of talks a lot of different presentations and you know what i like to call it or what i like to title it is life lessons learn from the extremes and what I try to do in my presentations is is try to make it relatable like yeah you're not going to hack through the jungle but in a way we all face our own struggles in life we all we're all hacking through our own kind of jungle really um, and if I can spread certain messages like the fact that no matter what you do you can't always be motivated but you can be disciplined or that let's not focus and overwhelm ourselves with the daunting 
task that lies ahead to achieve that high up goal. But why don't you focus on what you can do now, today, uh, and achieve, you know, achieve the little goals that equally leave you feeling pumped up at the end of the day because you're like, wow, I've achieved this, which is now making me get even closer to my main goal, which will take me a year to achieve, for example. It could be your career. It could be an exam. It could be your degree, you know? So I do always try to make it relatable um, and talk less about, um, less about, you know, myself in the jungle, but in a way where the stories from being in the jungle by myself can relate back to that person and they can choose what to take from them. And hopefully people will take something to help them in their everyday life, you know? I think they will. So for your Madagascar trip, yeah, your, your logistics guide or your guide, he was the only person with you, right? I mean, besides your photographer for that stint. Yeah. So I had, I had a guide, uh, one guide for the Southern section because he knew bandits and he knew military. He knew what to do. Unfortunately, he had faced them many times um, and had survived every encounter. So he was a good, he was a good guy to take with me. Um, In the middle section, I had someone different someone who knew the sort of Fianadasu region. And then for the north, I took a different guide again who knew the jungles. Um, yet we still got lost. We still got stuck up the mountains. He'd only been there two or three times before, but that's two or three times more than I have been. So uh, we were always in it together. It was interesting because a lot of the map work I ended up doing um, just because we would cross different regions that they've not been to before, you know. But what they were there for as well was um, translating, really. They really helped with the translating. But we built such a bond, you know. We had arguments. We um, went through highs, went through lows. And they, they're like my Malagasy brothers now. You know, I always mention them. They're mentioned in the book. Uh, I feel that a lot of guides... Um, on various different expeditions that people go on don't get enough credit so what i always try to do is is give them credit and you know the success of this madagascar was a huge percent down to to them being with me you know i couldn't have achieved it if it wasn't for them um sticking with me at certain sections especially down south one of my first guides uh, i almost I, I was telling him to go home because it, we were in bandit scenario and he he was quite, he turned into, well, he was a quite an alcoholic. So he turned to drinking every time he was stressed, which didn't help matters. So he would drink, then he would start crying. And then he would start telling me how I'm going to die and how he's going to die because of the bandits. And that is immensely distressing. I can't even describe the amount of fear that I had when I see my own guide threatening for his life on mine. They were pretty much saying the bandits are going to kill him. Then they're going to hold me ransom to get money off the government. Um, but then I'm speaking to my logistics manager, who's based in the capital, Antananarivo, who's sort of like, no, not at all. You know, you'd be fine. And put me up, me on the phone. Me was his name. And then he would try to sort him out. And then the next morning, he's a little bit better because he's not drunk. But now he's hungover. So he's a problem for me because he can't keep up. And now he's dehydrated. So it was difficult. But he could have gone home for the many times that I said, look, just go back. You're obviously distressed and disturbed by what's going on. I don't need this. I'm cracking on regardless. Um, but he didn't, he didn't want to leave me alone. He wanted to make sure that I, that I made it through too, you know? So I was like, wow. Um, so there was that, you know, there was that. And I guess that's how we <laughs> built our bond. It was just like, Oh my God, what am I doing? I'm right now I'm trekking with, with an alcoholic who is jeopardizing you know, jeopardizing, putting his life at risk, putting my life at risk, really, with his antics. Um, 
but yet he's, he's, he's stuck with me. I stuck with him. And then we built the relationship. We got stronger. And we still write today, you know, over Facebook. We'll still t- touch base. I'll see how he and his family is. And um, I've, seen, I've been back there to lead a trip for Charity Challenge uh, where I took uh, 10 or 13 different members to the second highest peak. And I wanted him to be lead man. Um, so, yeah, you know, we always keep in touch. I do, I do have big, big respect for all of the guys that join. Was your Madagascar trip just to hike the southern, the entire length of it, south to north, or was there something additional that you were trying to highlight? Yeah, so with all of my expeditions, not not the first sort of three years, so all of the Vietnam cycle and, you know, that I just did purely for the love and passion and wanted to go on an adventure, but also because I had no funds, really. I was like, I'm not spending that much on a train. That's expensive. You can get a bike cheaper and um, much cheaper than that and just go ahead and cycle. So it was a bit of the budget and a bit of just having that sense of adventure. However, you know, back then I didn't promote it. I wasn't sharing stories. Um, it was not a job. It was, as I said, it was just because I loved it. When I started to see people's interest in these journeys, I was like, wow, okay, you know, people are interested. Sort of why not, why not take them along with me virtually? And so I started to, to share my journeys more online. Uh, and that way I could ask for any tips and advice, but also could give tips and advice. Um, and then once I saw a bit of a transition, I thought, well, I'm not, I don't want to just do these for adventure's sake. I have a huge love for the environment, for the world we, we live on. And I've seen it, fortunately and unfortunately, firsthand, through firsthand experience, the damage that we're causing, the pollution, the change in some of these environments that I'll, I'll revisit. And I'll always try to do something. So if I can bring more responsibility to my adventures. It gives me more of a reason, more of a purpose, um, which gives me more of a motive. So with Mongolia, I actually was raising funds for the Red Cross, but crucially about that journey, I was raising awareness for climate change and the effects that it has on the nomadic way of life. So the, the winters, you know, due to climate change, the winters are so much harsher there now. It gets to minus 30, minus 40 degrees Celsius. The livestock struggle to survive in the long duration that is of the winter now um, and they end up dying off the locals then are out of work so the nomads they can't work um, in these remote areas as they have done for many many years and they're forced to move to the capital city that being Ulaanbaatar and there's now a Gur district that lies surrounding the capital city you know it's one of the coldest if not the coldest capital city in the world they burn whatever they can find to stay warm and that involves a lot of plastics so there's a smog that covers the whole capital city uh, people are dying it you know newborns are suffocating and the advice from doctors to the parents are evacuate the city it's not healthy any child won't be able to breathe but people don't really hear of that story so what I was trying to do on my journey was really highlight and spend time with the locals that are facing it firsthand, get their opinion, get, get their take. Um, so with Madagascar, I partnered up with the Lima Network Conservation. So Madagascar, as I mentioned, fourth largest island in the world, 80% of all, probably more than 80% of all plant life and wildlife found on the island is found nowhere else in the world, which means it's incredibly unique thing, you know, plant life and wildlife that I was walking past on a daily basis. I knew that I would never see that anywhere else in the world, which was a crazy feeling. So there's a conservation out there that have 60 organizations on the ground helping to protect and preserve all of the unique biodiversity. So I partnered up with them. So along the summits and the eight highest mountains, I would also drop back down to meet up with these organizations and get their story, 
get their take. For me, they're the real unsung heroes. You know, the environmentalists, the conservationists doing their utmost, often volunteering and often risking their lives to expand national parks, to put out these forest fires, to bring species back from the brink of extinction is what I love. And so I, I put as much of the, the shone, as much of the light as I possibly could on them and the amazing things that they're doing. And because of that, Madagascar, they ended up bringing me back to the country and announcing me as a UK ambassador for Madagascar tourism, which was great. I think we reached over 350 million people worldwide. Um, I was promoting getting the Lima Network conservation out there, getting the tourism. You know, there was a lot of dangerous things that happened in Madagascar, of course. But as a, as a tourist, if you're not going there to do crazy adventures, you shouldn't really be where I went. Um, and if you're not where I was, you're safe. You're fine. Madagascar is a beautiful place to travel to. You have got the beach resorts. It's very little travel to, I think, because it features in a lot of people's minds, but very few people actually go there. Um, but it's open and it's a beautiful place. So I do highly recommend and encourage people to, to get themselves there. Um, but yeah, so if I can always do my bit to help make a difference, then I always will, especially on sort of these adventures. Um, you know, I'll be cutting through or seeing the country firsthand. So it's important that I share the, these messages. The, the way that you are trying to portray climate change by sharing the, the living conditions of the people in these countries that are being affected, to me, I think is the most is going to be the most beneficial way to actually get this point across. As you know, in the yeah. United States, it's still hotly debated for some reason. And I think a lot of that debate stems from the lack of, of knowledge that most Americans have because we in this country aren't seeing any impacts. We're very fortunate to be in one of the richest countries on the planet. And we really don't yeah. have to deal with any of these environmental conditions. We, we're, we're very tucked away and we're very uh, safe. But yeah. I think being able to somehow give a, a, a visual presentation or, or provide Americans with the information they need to say, hey, look, like, yeah, you're not being impacted, but this is very real for a lot yeah. of people on a daily basis. I think, it, I think that would be better than just having the government bicker and, and go back and yeah. say, hey, this is what the numbers say. Here are the numbers. Here's the data. Here are the bar graphs and the line graphs. And, but let's shy away from that and just put the camera on these island nations that are losing land and losing livestock and losing lives. And yeah, exactly. It, it's stories. Farther. It's stories and experiences that can make a, a big difference, isn't it? And I believe, you know, out of sight is out of mind. Um, same with malaria. You know, you've got this coronavirus, which is awful. Uh, and that is like spreading and spreading. But at the same time, you've got malaria that kills a person every two minutes. It kills thousands, hundreds of thousands every year. But out of sight is out of mind. The UK doesn't suffer with it. America doesn't suffer with malaria. Why, why focus on it? Um, and that's similar with, with climate change is we're not really feeling. Although saying that, I, I feel now the US and the UK, we are being hit, aren't we, by the climate change? Yeah, um, I think every country is now, is now suffering, isn't it? Florida, they're looking to, to raise um, near the coastline. Yeah, yeah, they're looking is, is that right? Miami. I've, I've heard something that they're looking to elevate yeah, in Miami, they're looking to add, I think, two foot to all of the roads in the city. Yeah, because the water the, levels are rising, yeah. The yeah. Thing so is, I think though, we're feeling it everywhere. But yeah, it's personal stories. Um, like since this malaria, talk about turning like a sort of negative into a positive. I partnered up with an organization called Malaria No More UK. 
and they believe that they can eradicate malaria from the world within our lifetime, which is amazing. Uh, and they've been working on it a long time. And since I think it was the year 2004 or 2005, they've managed to half the deaths of malaria within that short amount of time. So it used to be a ch- someone dies every minute. Now it's someone dies every two minutes, uh, every two minutes. Um, and I partnered up with them. I'm ambassador. I'm, I was able to address uh, Parliament, the UK government, by telling them a real life story, not just from what I experienced, um, you know, facing malaria myself, but how I pushed on. And for the next four months, I, I couldn't not see communities and families that were ripped apart by the disease, by malaria, you know, kids not being able to go to school. So they're starved of their education or parents not being able to earn money because they're looking after their kids with malaria. So now they're struggling to feed the feed the family because they're not earning any money. And so by addressing, you know, we were successful as a whole joint effort in raising, I think it was a, an extra 20% um, increase into the global fund, which turned to be 1.2 billion pounds, which goes to save over 8 million lives within the next five years, which is amazing. Wow. And that's just from everyone chipping in their personal stories, bringing up the graphs, the facts, the figures, this is how it is, this is what's happening, showing the uh, photos, showing the videos. Um, it seems to be stories that, that can make a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. How surreal is it for you that you're your craving for adventure turned into this, that you're able to contribute in this way. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I I could have never have seen it go in this way, as I mentioned, but it's almost, it it brings a much bigger purpose. And especially when it comes to like the environment, that's something close to my heart, as I said, Um, just because I'm seeing it firsthand. So if I'm able to, you know, at this scale, having a small voice in the future, we hope to just keep expanding. It's just the beginning for myself. We hope to keep growing and growing. And as much as that grows, the voice will grow. And as much as the voice will grow, the more I can talk about all of these beautiful and crazy things going on. But I like to try to bring positivity as well. I think that the world is full of negativity, negative news. And I believe positivity spreads further positivity. So, for example, with the Lima Network Conservation, um, there's forest fires that go on quite often but rather than talk about oh god you know here we go there's another forest fire in madagascar you know what do we do you know whilst all of these volunteers which there's thousands of volunteers are actually helping by supplying the locals with education expanding national parks making certain things like burning or fires illegal in certain places no one hears about that they, they only hear when there's a forest fire but they don't hear the behind the scenes so i believe yes we can bring awareness to those struggles by saying that there's a forest fire, but I believe it should be in a different angle. Like, look at these amazing volunteers. They've been working for two decades now. They've expanded the national park by this much. Yes, there's a forest fire, but they're, they're doing this to put it out, or they're educating the locals, or they've rammed up the number of volunteers, you know? So I just think there's a way to go about spreading news. And I feel that news is often spread in such a negative way rather than um, shining light on on the people that get overlooked, the people doing amazing things to help do their best. Yeah. And you know why it's amazing. That's why I say they're the real unsung heroes because they don't really get enough praise yet. They're fighting the negative news and their stories never told, but they don't give up after 10 years, 20 years. They're still there making a difference, bringing species back from the brink of extinction. As I mentioned, you know, uh, supplying locals with a different means of work instead of, burning down the forests to create paddy fields to earn an income. They're finding them different alternative ways 
to earn money instead of doing the paddy fields and burning down the forest. So that's what I like to do is bring awareness, of course, of difficult things going on. But if I can do it in a positive way where someone else then sees that story and feels inspired and maybe wants to volunteer or help out in any way, then I feel that that's the way to do it. Can we transition and continue to talk about your uh, community efforts and environmental efforts with the Yangtze River in China? Because you paired up with sure. the Green Development Foundation and World Wildlife Foundation and a few other environmental organizations to highlight marine plastic, renewable energy, and green finance, which I've never heard that term before. And so can you, A, talk about your trip and then talk about how those organizations are involved and tie into your trip. Yeah, sure. So with the Yangtze, that was the biggest one to date. That's the most ambitious. That's, um, yeah, let me just close this blind. That was a 4,000 mile journey. It took 352 days to complete. Um, it was pretty much the biggest thing that I could find that hadn't yet been done. Uh, and I was always keen to go back to China. You know, I visited there in 2010 beautiful country but I barely touched the surface you know I was always on the east coast and I was only there for two weeks when I look at the map of China and realize how big it is I was like man what can be done there how can I really explore the beauty the diversity the traditions um, in the through the heart of the country and there was many things that stood out the Yellow River the Great Wall of China but the Yangtze River for me the mother river of the country it just stood out as wow this would be epic to to try to do uh, that took over two years to plan. It was a very sensitive expedition to undergo because of, because of where I was, really, the regions that I was crossing through, getting access to the source of the Yangtze River, I believe is possibly the most difficult source to get access to of any of the major rivers, just because it's so close to Tibet. And, you know, you can't pay money just to get access there. You've got to be approved. You've got to have stamped, verified um, documents from the government. So we had 14 different organizations on board. Cutting a long story short, I won't bore you with the two years of planning. Um, but the difficulty of this journey was before we made it to the source of the Yangtze River, I lost four members before day number one due to altitude sickness or fear of wildlife or injury, uh, just trying to get to the source. When I say lost them, they all survived. They're back home, say, with their yes. families. <laughs> Uh, but they had to be either evacuated or abandon the expedition. That delayed me by two months. Uh, and by the time that I eventually did get access and start the expedition, I then had 352 days to go. Um, we were facing minus 20 degrees Celsius. Um, we were trying to avoid the bears because the bears were coming off the mountains because it was too cold and they were coming down to look for food, look for calories before they went into hibernation. So we were constantly told by the locals that we are here at the wrong time quicken your pace up or get off the mountains. Uh, I was then stalked by a pack of wolves for two days, only the day after they had killed a local lady. Um, that was pretty worrying. The wild yak, uh, the minus 20, you know, there was, there was snowfall. Unfortunately, I was always hoping to, to beat that. Um, but yeah, you know, by four months in, we had lost 10 members of the 16 different videographers and guides that had joined me because we were filming for an international documentary. So it was challenge after challenge. But that's, people love to hear the difficulties, but with China, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful country. The locals were amazing, very friendly. Uh, I cut through possibly 10 or 11 different provinces, and each province was like their own country. You know, I cut through um, the sources at over 5,100 meters altitude. You know, it's almost the height as Everest Base Camp. Um, so on the Tibetan Plateau there, which is kind of the Himalayas, 
it's snowy, it's mountainous, it's rugged. And then you drop down to Sichuan province and it's more of a tropical environment. You know, you're now trading in the bears and the wolves for your snakes and your spiders. You're trading in your sort of yak meat and milk and yogurt for your fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices. So the diversity was just constant. But the reason it took 352 days was it was just not about the walking. It wasn't about every day I'm going to try to smash out this mileage. We opened it up. We wanted it to be one of the world's most interactive. We had Chinese celebrities, members of public organizations, brands, conservation and environmentalists joining me as well. Uh, and I really wanted the message to be, you know, get involved. Don't just watch from your phone. Come and join me one hour, two hours, a day, a week, two weeks. It didn't matter. Um, and so that's what I loved. And that comes the angle of what you mentioned with the likes of WWF. I tried to partner up with as many organizations as much as I could along the way to shed the light of, yes, the pollution. Um, I took a bottle with me, which is like a water to go filtration bottle. And that by using that, meaning I could drink from any water source except for salt water using the same bottle, it stopped me from using what I would have used, which was around 1,400 half litre single use plastic bottles. So we were given free bottles out at schools. I was doing free presentations um, about the journey, but also about the damage plastic pollution has. And I was, of course, meeting up with volunteers and organisations to spread the positive stories of how they're turning it around. The Yangtze is getting cleaner. Um, the finless porpoise dolphin, which is amazing out there, it's called the smiling dolphin. It's always been rapidly decreasing and decreasing on the way to extinction. But only in recent years, the, the numbers have started to steady and they believe in another one or two years, they'll start to increase, which means that the Yangtze is getting cleaner. The air quality is better. There's more solar panels, there's more trees being planted, there's more wind farms. Um, so I thought I would end the Yangtze on quite a negative in terms of doom and gloom and how polluted but if anything i ended on a positive note with actually yeah there's still a long way to go you know china's a big polluter big contributor to the, to the uh, climate crisis but they are changing their way and they are changing it rapidly considering they've got 1.4 billion people i tell you what we need i think countries that i'm living in, like the uk need to take a leaf out of their book because they are moving fast um so it ended on a high note for sure yeah, I think China is definitely on the forefront of green technology and cleaning up their environment because they understand how impactful and valuable those resources are and how many, knowing that they have one over a billion people that yeah. rely on these resources, they can't keep doing the same thing and expect That's to it. continue life as yeah, usual. Exactly. Yeah. And we just don't hear much about it. I hit so much when I was out there in China of all of the amazing things being done. Um, but it wouldn't hit Western news. It was almost like China do stuff, not for the limelight. They don't do stuff to be shouted about. They just do it. They'll crack on. And there's certain stories that I knew like a year or two years ago, especially about the plastic bag ban. That's um, they're, they're look at every major city. They're looking to ban plastic bags throughout, which was a big deal for China. Um, but I found that about a year and a half ago. But recently on, on the radio, I heard the other day, that, oh, amazing news, you know, China have just announced. So it's almost like they'll, they're doing a lot of stuff in the country, but they're not too bothered about sharing it with the rest of the world almost, you know. It's, they're just cracking on. They know what's right. They're doing the right things, but they'll probably won't really tell you until like a year or two later. Almost, right. You know? Yeah. It's really interesting that China is 
probably going to have more electric vehicles in the U.S. soon. And Chevy, which is a U.S.-based car manufacturer, is releasing a compact SUV that's fully electric only in China. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, man. Because there's, there's a big demand for it. There's a yeah. big, big demand. I believe that they cut out in certain cities. They got rid of all motorbikes as well. Um, uh, and so now a lot of people have got the electric motorbikes. Electric motorbikes are everywhere. Electric vehicles, actually, as a, a general rule, is are pretty much everywhere in, in China, especially the big cities. But by getting rid of the motorbikes, there's a lot of a lot more congestion because the cars, you know, the traffic. Right. Um, so they're just trying to sort. They're just sort of figuring figuring it out as they as they go. But there is a lot of support now, especially like along the Yangtze River. The organisations that I met up with, I was asking them about the government support and LV. Are they behind it? And they said, yeah, they're shouting about it. They're offering more support. I think it's the WWF headquarters that were just donated a um, certain amount of offices uh, for free. Like, there you go. There's all your office space. So they all allowed, which going back about five, 10 years ago, they weren't supported. It was like try, they were trying to hush them up. But now they are actively promoting, they're encouraging, they're spreading the news. Um, uh, you know, the, the prime minister, uh, the president dropped down to the Yangtze River Bank going back about two and a half years ago. And he did this big um, tour, this hit the national press of how important the Yangtze River is and how we must protect it. There's now a fishing ban on the Yangtze. So I heard that it was going to be one season um, on, one season off. But now it's a, it's a 10 year solid ban on, on fishing from the Yangtze River directly. That's and huge. when you speak to the locals, because I got to speak directly with them and hear their thoughts on this, and they said that they've already been making the slow transition for the past two years um, into a better means of work to provide an, 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 an income without affecting the Yangtze River uh, or, the, or the environment uh, as a whole, which was amazing because it's almost like if the government's against it, they're against it too. The second the government says, I'm now with it, boom, you know, it's across, it's across China and all of the the locals are also now with it. So it was amazing to see their positive attitude towards it for sure. That's, that's awesome, man. So what's in the future for you? Do you have any other crazy trips planned that, that you can share with us? Yeah. So mission Yangtze was just the warm up. Um, the warm up <laughs> that, that, you know, that 4,000 mile, 352 day warm up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No exciting things. Now I've taken a lot of trips actually out to LA, some big things happening there. Um, I can't say too much now, but we are working as well on the international documentary. The Mission Yangtze one was documented throughout the whole course of the year-long journey. We should be releasing that next month, and I should um, yeah next month, and I should find out dates and channels this month that I will soon be able to announce the second second book we're working on. But um, as you said, you know I'm, I'm 29. I still feel you know this is very early stages of the of the career. Um, and I think a year is too long. A year is ridiculous. I, I can't imagine myself doing another expedition that long, but I can imagine doing multiple adventures that are just as extreme and just as ambitious for sure. More tell, I would like to do more for TV because I feel like the message of, of um, especially the angles that I have to my expedition, the uh, environmental protection, uh, sustainability, etc., is great. But if we can reach a wider audience via TV, then that's the way to go. So um, that's also what we're working on. So big things. These these types of adventures that you do really get get the attention of people. So I think it's a great way to tie it into like, you know, pull people in essentially, you know, hey, look yeah. what I'm doing. This is absolutely mind boggling. 
And then at, by default, you introduce people to the actual, the conservation efforts and the thought process in, in going That's a little it. bit greener. So it's a, it's a yeah. cool way to tie the two together. Definitely, definitely. You know, if I can, and again, that's how it started with the whole Mongolia. I thought if I, if I could do a journey, but also bring something to the country that's allowing me, that's giving me the visa, that's giving me the, the backing in terms of governments to actually do it in the first place. If I can um, share stories from within that people may not have otherwise known or certain highlights or certain positive messages that people weren't aware of, then I will always do that. And it brings more, as I say, more, more of a reason, more of a motive to do these journeys as well, rather than just for adventure's sake. Right, right, right. So like my friend says he's got a good saying. He says, explore to conserve. And I love that. Yeah, that's that's a great saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show today, man. We really appreciate it. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. I can, I can talk, can't I? I bet you guys are like, bloody hell. This, <laughs> that, that, no, this is amazing. It was yeah, so yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I'm so <laughs> dead, dude. This is a Sunday morning for us, too. I mean, this is this is an incredible way to spend it talking with you. No, that's ace. No, thanks for calling in, guys. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, before uh, keep me, go on. Before we go, share. Please share like your social media anywhere anybody can contribute, follow along, get a hold of you. Um, where? Can yeah, sure. Um, my Instagram, I'd probably say, is the most interactive in terms of stories, and that would probably be the first where I announce the next um, expedition and the next uh, the documentary dates and channels. So there is Instagram, that's just Ash underscore Dykes. There's the website, which all of the ch- social media platforms can be found on, which is ashdykes.com. That's like your YouTube, your Twitter, etc. The book is out on Amazon uh, worldwide. So that's just called Mission Possible. Um, so yeah, you, by all means, you know, if you're interested, um, do follow along for sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on the show today. Much appreciated. Have a, uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You too. You too. Take care, guys. So this is not going to be the last that we hear of Ash and his adventures. I, and I hope that some of you out there that listen to these, these past two podcasts are inspired to maybe take that leap and see the world in a more untraditional way. Yeah. And I think the thing that I remember most out of it, it was just one sentence, is it that he did not have a dark past. And we have heard of many, many travelers that had a dark beginning and he just wanted to see the world and experience life in a different way. Nothing traumatic happened to him to make him see anything different. Right. Yeah, that is interesting because that dark past or that those uh, tragic events that, that some people endure end up leading them to seek something out of life and ultimately travel. Whereas Ashes is just purely motivated, motivated by curiosity and he had a very encouraging background and family life. So... It was pretty cool because he took it to such an extreme. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I'm excited to follow him and, and hopefully we, we stay in touch and get him back on again in the future. Yeah. So the second part of Ash's episode for the trivia question is how many people dropped out of Ash's team before his China expedition was over? And if you have that answer, again, shoot us an email or a direct message on social media. Again, that email is thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com. And please take a moment out of your day to give us a rating on the platform you listen on or shoot us a message if you would like to suggest a guest, a topic, or something you want to hear in general. And we appreciate your time and tune in next week for another episode.